0: Welcome to the Self-Evident and Forgotten Podcast, a show with conversations on the truths of liberty and odd opinions. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. As always, the opinions we express are ours and ours alone, and they don't necessarily reflect those of our employers or any other organization we may belong to. Wherever you are, and however you're listening and whatever you're doing, Thanks for tuning in. Now relax and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Self-Evident and Forgotten. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christian, and Cody. Every president from Washington to Biden has had a cabinet. A group of official policy advisors that lead the major executive departments of the federal bureaucracy. From famous Secretary of of Treasuries like Alexander Hamilton to notoriously powerful counselors like Secretary of State Henry Kissinger, those at the highest level of policymaking warrant our examination. And Joe Biden is no different. So today, we're going to take a look at some of his nominations and even confirmed candidates. But first, the random question of the episode. Christine Cody, what is your favorite action movie?
1: Oh, Die Hard. I'm sorry, was I supposed to like pause and think? That and... was remarkably sorry. fast. Um, hmm, I, I mean, maybe, possibly, <laughs> do you mean, it? I guess Die Hard? <laughs>
0: Has it been this way forever? Or is this like a recent like, oh, man, this is awesome kind of thing?
1: No, as long as I can remember. I mean, I love a good like 80s action movies. Uh, One of the guys I lived with in college is like a huge fan of like old school action, like terrible action movies, crazy fight scenes. But Die Hard has always been the movie that I can sit back and rewatch no matter how many times I've seen it. And the lines are just so quotable and they never get old.
0: No, it's it's a it's a great correct.
2: movie. Mine would have to be Gladiator, actually. Mm. Oh, that's a good one. I yeah, say Cody, where's it, where's
0: that Roman? Where's that Roman angle? Well, I maybe know, if it I was just... historically accurate. <laughs>
1: yeah, <laughs> sure, I do care
2: about that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but know, the first year it came out, my brothers and I literally watched it eleven times that year. Oh man! And we like say to each other, we like go like this on our. Like pound our hearts and say strength and honor. <laughs> <laughs> and we get together, we totally
0: do that. <laughs> That's awesome. Man, I, I'm i a sucker for good submarine movies like Hunt for Red October and Crimson oh. Tide. I'm a sucker Ooh. for those kind of things. as even as fake as they are. Uh, well, actually some of them are actually realistic, but others are just like out absurd. A uh, down periscope with uh, Kelsey Grammer <laughs> is one of my favorite comedies ever. If I had to boil it down though, it, not even a submarine-related movie. I think my favorite action single action film is John Wick Two. Oh, that is such a good, like the whole the whole series is amazing. Mm-hmm. That one in particular, when they started to expand the mythology behind the Continental, the High Table, the the little markers, and then on top of it, you know, Keanu Reeves just kicking ass with with dogs. Uh, no, that's that's three with, with with guns and horses, and it's just. It's awesome. I love
1: that. That's a great that's a great, great action sequence. As a as a gun guy, that movie, moreover than anything else, is I mean, he actually trained to learn how to like shoot and reload. They actually it's the, like the only action movie that actually pays attention to round count. Mm-hmm. So he actually knows how many rounds he has in the gun instead of having like some mythical magazine that California politicians are worried <laughs> exists in real life that has like seven thousand rounds in it. That movie, that's a great. Those are both great choices. That's a good top three right there. That's your official self-evident and forgotten top three action movie list. I think that's perfect. Die Hard, John Wick Two, and Gladiator.
0: I, 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 that's that's a you could have a a wonderful weekend with those three. Right? You
2: would never <laughs> be
1: bored. Never be bored. So
2: next time we just have to go through like top chick flicks. Just FYI.
1: Uh, mean Girls. Also, mean girls. mean girls. I still quote Mean Girls <laughs> mean to girls. this day. It oh has my, to be Mean Girls. Too fast. <laughs> <laughs> Again, should I have
0: should I have waited? Should I have been like, going, <laughs> oh well, maybe no. Well, there is another one. It's more of a Stanton's a pusher. I am. I am. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Speaking of pushers, <laughs> let's look at let's look uh, at this. I've been trying to figure out what to title this episode. You no, know, I always have you no know, weird ideas. I, I think of instead of. Presidential cabinet, presidential cabal, a cabal of of conniving and thieving politicos. I don't know. But- Biden's oligarchy. Ooh, the oligarchy. Not bad. Not bad at all. Well, who wants to go first? Who wants to rip into an oligarch first?
1: <laughs> oh, and just silence that Cody, you're, you, you,
0: you're awesome. You spoke first, you broke the, you broke the tension. Why don't you go first with your, and by the way, we're only going to do a couple, I uh, think about uh, five or six of these guys. Cause if we go through all 15 major executives, plus, you know, the U S trade representative, we're not going to have enough time here. We're going to be here for hours. <laughs> but Cody's got two. Let's hear it, Cody. Yeah. So I think
1: I, and honestly a good jumping off point for any administration, right. Is their choice for, Attorney General. Um, So why don't we just go ahead and start with Merrick Garland, uh, who is Biden's choice yet to be confirmed for Attorney General. Um, Merrick's also a a household name these days because of certain actions that occurred in 2015, 16, 16. 16. Wow. Look, okay, if it's the Roman Republic, I can tell you exactly when Caesar crossed the Rubicon, but you give me, (laughs) you give me the end of Obama's term and I'm like, ah, (laughs) I just Um, prefer to forget that, that whole sequence, right? Oh yeah. So Merrick Garland is famous because he is a, currently is a judge on the DC circuit court of appeals. The DC circuit court of appeals is kind of famously referred to as, you know, the little Supreme court, the mini Supreme court, Supreme court, white, whatever you want to call it. Uh, And that's because for purposes of venue for legal cases, you can sue in a couple different places. You can sue when, where injury occurs, you can sue where most of the action occurs that you're suing over, but for the purposes of the federal government, you can almost always sue in DC as well. So as a result, there are a ton of cases that are litigated in uh, the district court for the District of Columbia. And those cases then have to be appealed to the DC circuit. So that court hears a ton of cases that are dealing with administrative oversight, administrative rulemakings, um, agency authority. All of those cases are, are most commonly litigated in the DC circuit where Merrick Garland is currently a judge. Obviously his name is famous because Obama appointed him to fill a vacancy on the Supreme Court at the very end of his term. And this caused a little bit of a kerfuffle. Uh, some Democrats felt in the Senate, felt that Obama was president and should be able to appoint a Supreme Court uh, justice because he was still president. And that was his right to nominate one to the Supreme Court. Republicans felt as though there was a long-standing tradition or rule of not necessarily voting, on a Supreme Court nominee in the last year of the last term of the sitting president. And that was kind of a a distinction that they then tried to draw. It wasn't necessarily that clear in 2016, if I'm being honest. It became magically more clear in in 2020 when something similar happened uh, (laughs) to President Trump with his his nominee of uh, uh, Barrett, who we discussed in an earlier episode. So you know, Merrick, because he was appointed by Obama. One of the reasons he was appointed is because kind of on the surface, he's not really an offensive person. He's not outspoken and loud. He's a judge. He's reserved by nature. He, the, the way that I think that we're going to look at these, these nominees is how, what do they mean for Liberty? You know, we could talk a lot about politics. We could dig into this, so on and so forth. We should really talk about what they mean for Liberty and um I think the biggest thing with Garland where I have some hesitation is deference to agency action. So there's a couple uh, judicial deference doctrines that exist in our um, legal jurisprudence today. And that's, you've probably heard of our deference or Chevron deference. They're basically the same thing. The only difference is Our applies to agency regulations, like internal regulations and the interpretation of those. And Chevron applies to the interpretation of statutory authority. But both of these come in when there's some sort of purported ambiguous, uh, ambiguous term or statute and the agency is required, and I'm using air quotes, to interpret that statute or regulation and then figure out how that comes out in the end. Problem with deference is, The court basically kind of just takes a back seat and lets the agency do what it wants in a lot of contexts. And they can do that by just saying, ah, it's ambiguous. And when it's ambiguous, we side with the agency. Well, when you have an AG that is in charge of the litigation position for the United States and in many contexts, I am worried that we're gonna see a pronouncement of agencies pushing these deference doctrines And what those deference doctrines really mean at the end of the day is that agencies are passing laws. And not only are they passing laws, the courts aren't reviewing them. So you have an agency that's judge and jury and executioner because they're the ones that also assess the fines. So that would be my biggest kind of point to watch for Garland. uh, Should he be confirmed to AG is just what is the litigation position when we're talking about agency deference and, are we going to go back to an era where agencies are kind of unrestrained in the court's willingness to kind of rubber stamp their actions? And
0: that's going to also be important when looking at whoever here or, or bought and chooses for a solicitor
1: general, the one who actually goes and argues before the court. Mm-hmm. No, that's... that's Well, so SG is, I mean, yeah, but it's predominantly focused at SCOTUS. Um, so that's always the interesting level there, but yeah.
0: Okay. So we got we have this worry about... You know, he he was he's very reverent towards agencies. While well, as a judge, as an AG, he's going to push that even
1: further proactively from the bureaucratic side. And that's that's and the, here, dead on. And and this is this informs the rest of our conversation, right? Because we're going to start talking about people that are heading up those agencies. So you're going to you're talking about somebody that's going to defer to the people that are going to be sitting next to him in those those issue areas.
2: Which, in my opinion, is precisely how someone like Joe Biden can you know, claim to be moderate and put someone who also claims to be moderate or I guess judges don't really claim what they are, but who everyone <laughs> interprets as a moderate in these positions that basically, in so many words, just turn a blind eye to the ways that liberty is really going to be damaged and attacked through these other more rabid uh, secretaries and confirmations that the administration is seeking. I mean, and that even applies to all the executive orders that Biden himself <laughs> is already is streaming out of the White House. Um, so yeah, putting someone like Merrick Garland puts another moderate face on the Biden administration but it's absolutely not the reality. You need people who turn a blind eye in the positions of highest authority to get the stuff done.
1: So an and, income, oh, go ahead, Cody. Well, deference is the lifeblood of bureaucracy. Oh yeah. Right, I mean, the idea of bureaucracy is that you educate the people and then you put them in charge of the areas where they're subject matter experts, again, using air quotes, and then you allow those sublet- subject matter experts to then regulate those areas of your life and you defer to them because they're smarter than you that's Mm -hmm. bureaucracy i mean that's the entirety of the german ideal system that's the entirety of what's been pushed into the united states Uh, so when you've got somebody that is pushing that idea from the highest level or could be pushing that idea from the highest level that's where the the you know concern is really going to come in so in terms of whether moderate or
0: extreme and Pushing this idea of "I know more than you," Christy. Who is the president's? Oh, that's the time we're trying to keep a timer for ourselves so we don't go over. I didn't think it was.
1: We got a lot to cover and not a lot of time. People, bear with us. Won't do that again.
2: Christy, who's
1: who is the president's
0: secretary of of transportation or his nominee?
2: Oh, everyone's favorite mayor from South Bend, Pete Buttigieg. Mm -hmm. And he actually has been confirmed. So he is, in fact, the secretary of the Yes. And as many people might say, probably the least qualified secretary. You were going to
1: say that he's been confirmed as everybody's favorite mayor. (laughs)
2: You <laughs> oh, would like everyone to think, but um, as a joke, so not this Christmas, but one Christmas ago, my youngest brother, who was always playing jokes on me, bought me all these Pete Buttigieg for president uh, little pins and he hid them all throughout my Christmas stocking. <laughs> and he bought That's me a amazing. t-shirt with like Pete Buttigieg on it.
0: <laughs> I'll, I'll one up you here real quick, just as a uh, diversion, i one up <laughs> you here. So my senior year of college, um, now I'm living in a the senior level apartments. So I have my own room, sharing it with, uh, with three other guys. And no, but that year I was spending a significant amount of time at my now wife's uh, off-campus house, right? That was where I was spending most of my time. I really, I came over to my place to, to shower, grab some clothes and so on and so forth. My roommates would do like a little experience where like they place like things in my room, see if I would notice because I wasn't there a lot. One time they put like a log on my bed and I, I did notice I'm like, what the hell is a log doing on my bed? <laughs> Their ultimate test of my observance, they cut out and I kid you not, hundreds of little Donald Trump heads on paper. They oh. like print it and they just cut them out and they scattered it everywhere and i mean everywhere in drawers <laughs> in the, in the pages of my book in the pockets of my shirts i am still finding some today i had a tie <laughs> last week and in the, like the little crevice of the tie on the backside there was a trump head stuck in my tie <laughs> so yeah the little the the, the Pete buttons everywhere that i <sighs> that's frustrating like this will never end. Where are they coming from? <laughs> yeah,
2: no, paper's oh. are a lot more hard to get rid of than uh, pins. <laughs> you can well, just
1: imagine being in a meeting and having a Trump head fall out of your tie and having to explain that. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it It's,
0: it's oh, wow. just infuriatingly entertaining. All right, so back to Pete.
2: Yes, yeah, back to Pete and his transportation plans. So the interesting thing with him, because he doesn't have a lot of experience in transportation per se, especially being mayor of a small town, you can look actually to his presidential plans. When he ran for president, he did put out policy on transportation and what he would do as president. Well, technically, as secretary of transportation, he will, in fact, have more authority to implement any sort of transportation plans than he would have had he actually been elected president. So one big clue is that a transportation organization says that Pete Buttigieg's presidential plan for transportation was very similar to Michael Bloomberg's. Uh, That should give everyone a clue. Uh, When you look at someone from New York and how they implement transportation plans, they often do try to push certain options on people. And that's, that's precisely, I think, how this relates to liberty. We could, you know, Debate and have many different opinions on what kind of transportation is best, whether it's cars or public transit or just walk or ride your bike. But that's a completely different topic when you're actually talking about should people have the choice and the ability to transport themselves and their families as they choose. So, you know, certainly there's a lot of concerns with what Mayor Pete would do. One of his big plans as president, and we'll see how much of this would translate into his secretary plans, he wanted to institute a national Vision Zero plan, which again, this transportation organization calls it radical for a country where states are allowed to set their own targets um, to protect protect pedestrians. But what he wants to do instead is require that the states actively improve their safety records or road design processes or else lose federal funding for other roadway projects which on its face doesn't sound that bad. I mean, hey, none of us want to see pedestrians die and get hit, right? The, it's,
0: not like, it's not like Congress hasn't t- tied up money over certain requirements like drinking and speed limits. So it's, this isn't without precedent, but what makes this really meh down with right. the
1: 21st Amendment?
2: <laughs> well, yeah, a number of things. And, and one of them just being it's yet another power grab by someone in the federal government saying, well, you know what states, you don't do a good enough job yet again. And I'm sure some of them don't, but really we think the federal government (laughs) can do an ideal job. We think someone sitting in DC knows, you know, what Alabama needs, what California needs, what Georgia needs. I mean, flat out, they just don't. States always understand better and it's better for local pressure to rise. Uh, And the other thing, leaving that one a little bit on its own, just the ultra-federal control that he seems to want to implement, is, uh, let's see, this part right here. He talks a lot in his presidential plan about ride-sharing, public transportation, and just, in his words, good old-fashioned walking and biking, because the U.S., according to him, subsidizes driving tremendous amount but we are more reluctant to support transit or things like trains and if he became president he says that he would envision making a greater balance and supporting cities that are trying to do that too so in other words it's a selective support of cities across america not based on who actually needs transportation help but who agrees with his strategy on transportation which again is pushing public transit walking and biking on people not bad choices but something that should be a choice and you should push people out of driving because the federal government prefers only public transit to the detriment of what a lot of people actually need
1: so yeah, i think you're gonna see because so denver has this project zero we have it here um and the practical outcome of it has been they use all the pot money to add more bike lanes, bigger sidewalks, more walking areas. But the practical upshot of it has been that like, go drive downtown. Well, not anymore. Cause there isn't rush hour. Cause COVID is in, entering into year two, but uh, you know, like it was before COVID it was crazy because the, all the one ways were halfway closed down. You had bike and bus lanes that would take up two lanes of a, total four lane roads so that you'd only have traffic going one way each way. And then what it gets to is you get to this like walking city idea, right? You get to this idea of creating a, uh, a, you know, metropolis that you don't need a car in. you can just walk everywhere. You can just go and, um, you know, take public transit. But I I mean, it'll be interesting to see what the initial policies are and, and whether or not they do or how they prioritize and push federal government onto the states with COVID, because so obviously we've seen them impose a mask mandate on the channels of interstate commerce. <laughs> yep. But how are they going to treat, you know, an increase in rideshare and an increase in trains while they're also trying to stop people from interacting? I mean, you saw in New York car ownership skyrocketed with COVID. So they're going to have to figure out how to balance their agenda items on those two areas. But I think what you're going to see either way is federal dollars tied to a lot of programs that are incentivizing, you know, community transit models, which not only cost the community a ton of money, but are then going to cost us money in the expenditure of our federal tax dollars, which they're going to use to push those programs down.
2: Absolutely. Which also, and I get that this is probably a different issue for another episode, but inequitably distributes taxpayer dollars. You have states that pay a whole bunch of money and will see no money in trans- in transportation dollars come back to them because they are the kind of states that are more free and aren't going to adopt the federal government's preferred transportation modes. And so you just see them funding what California will probably do. And that happens all the time in so many areas, but this is yet another example of it happening. Right. Again. The
0: car heavy roads of California get subsidized, by the not so car heavy roads of Kansas and so on and so forth. Right. Yeah. You know, to, to his point, you know, lowering subsidies um, I don't know what he's referring to. I imagine he's referring to subsidies for oil, I guess, but I'm all about getting rid of subsidies i am all about cutting subsidies out of out of out of our budget but i have a strong he doesn't want feeling
1: to, he doesn't this is a one for one exchange stand
0: <laughs> no he doesn't want to cut subsidies he wants to move subsidies to something of a different preference right, right? If yes.
1: i'm in charge now
0: i get to say where the money goes and that's just that's just childish in my in my eyes
1: Speaking I did of, think it was really interesting. Hold, just before we move on quickly. So when, when Buttigieg was like formally nominated or Biden, not formally nominated, when Biden indicated that he was going to formally nominate him, his response, like he tried to, to have like a good communications style answer, like some PR person definitely put it together. And it totally backfired because his statement was like recounting thousand mile train trips that he had taken while he was in college and that he had proposed to his husband in like an airport terminal or a bus terminal. And he was like, I, I can't wait to run transportation because I used to sit on a train and I once proposed in a terminal and everybody's like, oh, you think that qualifies you to run a federal agency? <laughs>
2: That's terrible. <laughs> it's a just passion. like
1: comms 101. It just
0: it's just the like ultimate a, it's, backfire. A passion for a policy subject makes me an expert in a policy subject, <laughs> which is directly tied To Biden's nomination for Secretary of the Interior, Deborah Holland. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. We've been trying to figure it out here at SEF. We're as close as we can get. Deborah Holland currently is a representative from New Mexico. She is currently in the midst of her second term. Second term. Now, you might ask, what experience does she have? Now, if you don't know, the Department of the Interior manages most, not all, but most of the land owned by the federal government in the United States, right? Some of that land is um, owned and operated by the Department of Agriculture uh, via the uh, Forest Service, but most of it's the Department of the Interior, okay? This is where you get the Bureau of Land Management. This is where you get the National Park Service, et cetera, et cetera, okay? So you might ask, what does a second-term congresswoman from New Mexico have an experience in overseeing what is arguably the world's largest land owner. Right. That's essentially what it comes down to. Okay. Was she a, was she the governor of New Mexico beforehand? Was she a state representative that dealt with state parks? The answer is no, no. Before she was a Congressman representative Holland was the chairwoman for the democratic party of New Mexico. That's it. Right now. That's not to say that's not uh, not insignificant. That's not to say that she hasn't done a lot with her life and she's raised- Christy is shooting
1: you looks right now. No one else can see it,
0: but- (laughs) But let me put it out there. As (laughs) much as we love our politicos, as much as we love those who manage the important day-to-day work of state party politics, as important as that is, I'm not sure if that would qualify you to run the largest land management system in the entire world. Okay, I'm putting that out there now, to her credit, Holland has sponsored legislation that has been passed in part, not fully, um, that deals with land management. And she did this with Senator Udall of New Mexico. They they co-sponsored this. Um, But I I just got to ask, like, what on earth is this all about? Okay, We here at SEF do our best to avoid politics. Like politics from a, from a purely political perspective, right? We talk politics from a liberty-loving ideal. We don't want to talk politics, and we certainly don't want to talk about identity politics. But what is Biden's rationale for appointing Representative Holland to this position? If she has no experience with this, right? She wasn't even a, bu- a mid-level bureaucrat in the department. Representative Holland is a Native American. And when you are President Biden, and we're talking about this moderate versus extreme versus whatever, he is probably looking for a high-profile individual who is going to rally support for him from a variety of identities, from a variety of cross-sections of the country. And one cross-section that he's obviously trying to go for, which no, that's what that's what he's got to do, is a Native American population and Representative Holland fits the bill. On top of that she's a woman so that also plays into a really big effect. That's not to say that she's appointed because she's a woman. She's probably qualified in a lot of other things. I'm saying I'm wondering why is she qualified to be the secretary of the interior. By the way, the department of the interior manages about 507 million acres of land. The United States has about 1.9 billion acres. You do the math, that's over 25% of the country is managed by the federal government. We are going to put that management with someone who has less than four years of federal experience total,
1: illegally managed, mind you, constitutionally managed. Yes,
0: illegally constitutionally managed, <laughs> but we'll put that away for now. The point being is that that to me is a problem. Now, why is it a problem for liberty, for freedom, for for our for our for to be concerned about freedom? First off, as Cody mentioned, this land management. This is land that should be accessible, bought and sold by any American, right? Any American should be able to buy and sell land as they please. And to quarantine an entire fourth of the country away from the people is kind of absurd. Now, we might say, well, what about national parks? What about the beauty and the grandeur of our country? You know what? Fine, right? I get it, we want to protect that that land, and we can have a whole episode on whether or not national parks should be privatized right We could have that discussion I don't want to have it now. however, of that five hundred and seven million acres managed by the Department of the Interior, a fraction of it is available for public public engagement right most of us will never see most of that land not even not even a 20th of that land right and i'm here i'm here near rocky mountain national park which is a massive massive segment of northern colorado okay that is land that is going to be managed in a very certain way and in such a way that it might hamper those who have key economic developmental interests there so we talk about the keystone pipeline right that's uh that's a controversial thing in and unto itself that pipeline is already under development. That pipeline is already in the throes of, of being made, right? There are jobs that are being done. There are jobs at stake. And these are jobs that have been funded and invested in by private companies. And Biden has already put a halt to it through his executive order. What do you think a Secretary Holland is going to do? Now, only is she going to terminate the project completely, she'll probably terminate every project that has ever been started to begin with. That is a problem for those who have already invested millions, if not billions of dollars into developing that land, land that was given to them by previous administrations. So inexperience, probably hostile to economic development, this is not good for those who value the freedom to move about and to purchase and buy land.
2: Well, you're absolutely right, Stanton. And I think there's a couple of key problems that you brought up. One being that she, if you look back at the legislation she co-sponsored, she did co-sponsor a bill that would require zero gas emissions on federal and public lands. I don't remember by what year, but in order to do that, you have to stop all of the drilling, all of the everything related to oil and gas on any public land, which actually happens on a decent amount of public lands. Um, so she would want to stop all of that, which is terrible for economics and jobs all across our nation. I mean, America can be energy independent because we draw on our lands. So apparently she would rather have us beholden to other countries around the world. And then secondly, another bill she co-sponsored, she wanted to prohibit the Department of Interior, which she will now lead, um, to give any management authority of public lands to state officials. So one of those other moves of taking power away from states and prohibiting them from ever having it and leaving it with the federal government, which somehow knows so much better.
0: State governments, which are far more antipal to voters.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's exactly. A,
0: that's a, I did not know that aspect. I was looking at some of those bills. I did not know that part. That's, that's
1: terrifying. Well, and so here's the other thing, right? DOI is massive. You've kind of mentioned some of it, but I don't think people understand how massive it is. DOI is the umbrella for the National Park Service, the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Bureau of Land Management, which generally manages all um, mining and like oil and gas, um, as well as the Bureau of Indian Affairs, as well as the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, which does offshore. So you're talking about massive agencies that. So a lot of people think like the Fish and Wildlife Service is its own agency. No, it's under Department of the Interior. So all of these are kind of subsumed under that. One of the other things that part of my job, I work in, you know, I've done some uh, some environmental litigation on the, you know, ability of access and development side is looking at some of the sub-appointments um, for those, those areas. And we've got plenty to get through, so I won't go through them individually, but if you look at them a lot of them are coming from environmental nonprofits that's stated mission is to stop development on on publicly managed lands or to stop use of publicly managed lands by ranchers and farmers. You've got people that are coming from government centric uh, viewpoints of management and whatnot. And you're going to see most likely the you know, reversal of the prior administration's position of diversifying these management decisions back to the West and back to the states. Because, Stan, you mentioned that 25% of the United States is federally managed. You're right. Almost all of that is in the West. The state of Nevada is 80.5% federally managed. 80.5%. The state of Texas is something like less than 1% federally managed. I'm exaggerating, I think, but it's, I'm pretty sure it's in the single digits. The problem is like these decisions are all being made in DC and you're gonna have a director who's sitting in DC or an appointee who's sitting in DC who wants the decisions made there, but they're gonna affect people well outside of DC. And that's the problem that you continually get with this kind of what we've been talking about a bunch is this centralization of government back into the DC sphere. The other thing you're going to see that we haven't yet talked about but is relevant to every appointee and and will come up again is the how they're going to start treating and using climate change in their policy decisions. Obviously that's going to radically change from the Trump administration, but how far are they going to push it to be different than or how much further will they push? Uh, this, I, I, certain ideas are the basis on that idea from the Obama administration.
0: I mean, the idea interesting question. the idea of environmental protection and all that, again, we're not here to have a policy debate, but that's going to be used as a, a blanket defense for any policy, right? And one of the things that has terrified me the most is that, is the, is the declaration of environmental protection as a national security issue. And you know what, maybe it is, maybe we've got We got to protect our national security and the the environment is a threat to that. And we've got to make sure that we are prepared. I can we can debate the nuances of that, but I don't know if I have faith in the nuance of the Biden (laughs) administration actually attacking environmental protection and instead using environmental protection to do whatever they want, which brings us national security, not the Department of Defense, which deals mostly abroad. I want to talk about the Department of Homeland Security,
1: Cody. Oh, I think you want me to talk about the Department of Homeland Security. I do. I do
0: want to hear <laughs> That's you. What that
1: sounded like. <laughs> I want to. I
0: want to set you like a rabid dog on this department. I want you to sink oh. your teeth into this.
1: Oh boy, rabid dog. Okay, so the appointee, uh, Biden's appointee for to head up the Department of Homeland Security, and I will try not to to mess up his name. Uh, is Alejandro Mayorkas. Uh, he will be leading up the agency that is in charge of internal security, internal being a very broadly defined term these days uh, (laughs) in the United States. Um, This is a a kind of a good contrast actually coming from Holland in that Biden's cabinet or or appointees slash confirmed cabinet members is an interesting split between uh, kind of some interesting random polls from different places and Obama administration officials. Uh, And that's what Mayorkas Mayorkas is. Um, So he, he, the reason I can't, he's he's a a Cuban refugee which is why I can't pronounce his name uh, because I am not Spanish. So I will continue to try my best, but he's a Cuban refugee. He served in the Obama administration in the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, was a deputy secretary for Obama. Now, obviously, will be heading up the division. Um, What people should probably know most about him or where where it will come up is that he is kind of credited as the architect behind uh, the DACA and DAPA programs, which are the deferred action for, you know, children and and parents who came to the United States illegally but have had some form of, as the Supreme Court would say, detrimental reliances on on promises issued by the United States to not deport them. So those programs, which have been hotly debated and we really don't need to dig into it today because there will be something different coming out of the administration, I'm sure, um, that we'll have to talk about its effect on liberty. Uh, but, you know, it kind of gives you an idea of the viewpoint there of the Department of Homeland Security and, and where we're gonna see this go. So likely immigration is going to be a hot topic and likely the federal government will stay its hand uh, in a lot of areas where other people might wish the government did not stay its hand. So I think you'll see a more passive treatment of that. Where you're going to see a more active treatment is this question of domestic terrorism. And again, a word that's definition remains to be seen in the coming months. Obviously, after the January 6th Capitol riots that we already talked about, one of the reactions there was this treatment of those individuals or those that the attempt to label those individuals as domestic terrorists, but also much more broadly than the individuals that just rioted at the Capitol. But to, you know, are they going to start treating people that fly the Gadsden flag as anti government extremists and domestic terrorists? And this has been a policy point that. Alejandro has talked about, um, or that's come out in association with his uh, nomination, and I think you're going to see this very interesting treatment between those those two different groups of people in the United States. The federal government like, is forcing its authority or refusing to force its authority. Oftentimes, you would think this federal government staying its hand is good, which generally I agree with, but that's not always the case. Um, so it'll kind of be interesting to see the interplay there.
0: It's going to be. He hasn't been confirmed yet, has he? I don't believe yeah. so. It, it would behoove then of Senate Republicans to Senate Democrats as well, but probably Republicans because Democrats are just going to rubber stamp this. Of to explore that domestic terrorism question, right? What 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 does that mean, right? What's the current definition? What is the administration's desired definition? Because anything that Starts with domestic, should be an automatic red flag for any freedom-loving American. If the Also, government... I lied.
1: What? I ruined everything for you. He was confirmed yesterday.
0: Oh, no. By what margin, do you know?
1: 56 to 43. The Ooh. closest confirmation by far. I was just saying wow. that
0: is close.
2: Yeah, yeah close.
0: I wonder if that was brought up then during the Senate trials because of that reason. Oh, it was.
2: Oh, it was, was it? Yeah, no, that's one of the main things, actually, that he talked about in his testimony as he assured the Senate that he would look into domestic extremism. And that's actually what's interesting to me is that they're even going beyond domestic terrorism, which mm-hmm. obviously everyone opposes, and saying domestic extremism. And his, his written testimony, in fact, said that, and I'll quote from him, he says, while homegrown violent extremists present the most likely terrorist threat today dot, dot, dot. So homegrown, violent extremists. And he's equating that with terrorists. So it is lumping all those words together, which is why you you guys are absolutely right. What is the definition of that? And we definitely did see the Obama administration expand their idea of which domestic groups to watch and to monitor into people they just flat out didn't agree with politically. Um, So what does this mean?
0: And it's important to note that, no, violent individuals, are, are a problem. I don't think oh, anyone yeah. would disagree with that. The but the the, the 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 thing that we're worried about is anytime you label something as extremism and then you borderline it to terrorism that becomes a problem because terrorism is a very specific thing. Right? right. Again this goes back to a riot versus an insurrection. Okay. A a violent crime versus an act of terrorism. Because as soon as terrorism comes in this is where this is where national security bureaucrats like to say, ooh, an opportunity to use more power and to curtail
1: the civil liberties of Americans even further. To regulate speech, to regulate action, Mm -hmm. to regulate association. It's a lot easier to get around constitutional protections when somebody's got a scary label attached to it. I mean, we've seen that in literally everything the government regulates. I deal with it every day in firearms, right? We use these scary labels so that you, the the public is afraid. And when your response to fear is, well, maybe the government can help me.
2: Mm-hmm. You yep. just
1: took a step towards that centralized bureaucracy. Yep.
2: And the thing yep. is that words should actually mean something. And when anyone, a government doesn't <laughs> like, who is an extremist is now classed as the same as a terrorist, which is to your point, because the government more rights to monitor them and watch them and more people are on all the watch lists. I mean, then like, what does it actually mean to be a terrorist anymore? Like it should mean something very significant and that more inner focus, like of the government on its own citizens. I mean, that's honestly exactly what China does. They focus very heavily on their own citizens, monitoring them, uh, you know, and obviously we don't know how far these people will go, but the point is uh, to have an American government so hyper-focused on their own citizens, is always concerning if it when can your happen definition there, it can happen here
1: when your definition of homegrown domestic extremist also includes like by definition alexander hamilton i think you might have a problem <laughs> whoops <laughs> then again we can't name buildings or schools after him probably because he was
2: a violent extremist so. Actually, he's probably oh. one
0: of the only
1: ones that we could name
2: yeah because that's another thing that Deborah Holland wants to stop is well or undo, not only undo the racist names, but any offensive names. Hmm. So
0: that'll be interesting to look at. So Christy, <laughs> we're 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 running short on time, but we got you and my second. Let's hear about HHS, the Health and Human Services Department.
2: Yes. Okay. So Xavier Becerra is the choice. And he has not been confirmed. I, I made sure I knew and, that.
0: And and this is Becerra, the same Becerra that you and Cody have lawsuits against. The same one.
2: Yes, I and mean, Cody I think has like real full on lawsuits against him. I am filing an amicus brief in a case um, that he is being. He he's one of the parties too. Although it'll it'll be switched if he does get confirmed because right now he's the attorney general of California, and that in fact is I guess what most qualifies him to take the HHS position is actually his background in suing the Trump administration over and over and over and over again. And he's also one of the few people ever nominated for the secretary of HHS um, who has been in elected office for, oh goodness, I wanna say it's been over two decades of his life. He has been an elected official. You see most HHS secretaries either being health experts, which Sarah is not, or you see them being governors, like maybe someone who actually like had some- Like Sebelius
0: from Kansas.
2: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Someone who actually had some authority over a health organization. And in AG from California, who previously was in the legislature, does not. But Obama also had offered him a position, a lower position U.S. trade representative, and he had declined it at the time. But basically my point is he's been in the works, someone that the Democrats at the White House have wanted because of his loyalty to them. So it's not really his actual qualifications in any health related field that have caused him to be nominated for this position. It's the fact that he will do whatever <laughs> the Democrats in the White House want, or, or the Democrats in his state. California is obviously very anti-liberty. And um, that's the case that I'm involved with was, I guess, a very targeted um, prosecution by the government of California against someone who's pro-life, David Daleiden. Some people might be familiar with him. He did, in he was an investigative journalist, a citizen journalist, and did an investigation of Planned Parenthood, uncovered some crimes that were committed. A company that worked with them was even shut down by the state because of the crimes. And yet Kamala Harris investigated him and then Becerra kept it up and he's being charged with crimes. And anyway, the first amendment and free speech is super involved. And the point is Xavier Becerra has been an opponent of constitutional rights, unless he supports the policy views of the people who are involved. And that is a major problem when we're talking about any federal department, but certainly health and human services, which does deal with the abortion issue, with people's insurance, with end of life decisions. And he's proved that he, He is loyal to one side. He is going to do whatever he is asked to do by that side. So when your loyalty is not actually to the people, but to specific authorities in power, we know that our liberties will not be considered at all. um, And he doesn't have any expertise in the matter, but he will do whatever he's told.
0: And for those listening at home, it's important to realize the largest single item in the U.S. budget discretionary-wise, is the Department of Defense, right? We call it one of the largest departments ever, but it is not the biggest. The largest amount of money that Congress spends is on mandates, specifically in welfare. Two-thirds of the federal budget, of that $4 trillion budget, is actually devoted to the Department of Health and Human Services. I think there might be one or two agencies that are sub-independent from HHS, but HHS manages some of the biggest federal programs we deal with and to have someone that may or may not have expertise in this matter, or may or may not, uh, may or may not have any particular principles in terms of constitutionality, that's worrisome when they're dealing with that much, that much, that that many resources.
2: Well, and he wants to grow it. That's actually part of the problem too, is even though it is the biggest, he wants to grow it more. Like three years ago, he had told, Fox News that he would support Bernie Sanders Medicare for all legislation. No, no. And he'd been, according to him, he'd been supportive of the idea for all of the 24 years that he was in Congress, the US Congress. Um, and he got like a lifetime rating of 8% in the Council for Citizens Against Government Waste when they rated members of Congress. So No question, he is not a limited government advocate at all. He'd like to take this huge agency and grow it to monstrous proportions beyond what it already is.
1: Guys, I think we're being a little bit unfair. Remember, he's the AG in California, and California has handled this COVID crisis from a health perspective so well, That very clearly, there's experience involved.
0: <laughs> we should get Cuomo to be his
1: to be the assistant oh, undersecretary.
0: Oh, we need Cuomo know. as his assistant
1: oh. undersecretary. Nice- I just saw that in California, the restaurants can be open, but they have to turn their TVs off during the Super Bowl so that they don't encourage people to to oh. like. Right, that's just
0: petty. That's just cruel. That Dude. is vindictive. Po- okay, I got to say. Well, this stop. is also <clears throat> the
2: state, though, that told people around Thanksgiving that if they sang at gatherings, they need to sing in a whispering voice. And I'm not making that up. Ugh. Literally. So, yeah.
1: Whisper. So, I mean, the thing for me with with Becerra, um, and I am on the opposite side of the V uh, from his post in a couple of cases. Um, so, you know, guys, take my words with a grain of salt. Also, I will watch my words. Um, is so he's been an elected official longer than I've been alive, which I think is, is kind of telling. I mean, I'm not old, but don't get me wrong, but I think that's kind of an interesting perspective of like, this is his career. His career is as an elected official, which is it, it, that's a fact of life. What I think you're going to see is I think a lot of things that we don't currently treat as health issues are going to become federal health issues. I mentioned that we'll probably talk about climate change again, here it is. I think you're gonna see some aspect of climate change become a federal health issue and the federal government will look to regulate it as such. Also fairly well known, AG Becerra is one of the biggest opponents of gun rights in the country. California is one of the most restrictive states uh, when it comes to firearms. Uh, The AG's office regularly litigates against and takes very strong stances against individuals that attempt to challenge California's regulations. California also regularly litigates against the federal government when it tries to draw back regulations. I would not be surprised if you see, you know, firearms and gun rights treated as a health issue by the federal government under the Department of Health and Human Services. I think you're going to see these things change in the way that they're presented to the public. And the reason for that isn't because they're actually health crises. The reason for that is because the federal government will have a different way of regulating your life. And that's gonna be the scary thing under HHS. It's kind of a under the radar post and nomination that I think a lot of people are not going to be paying attention to. I think a lot of people are going to be paying attention to AG, DOI, um, inter- or interior, <laughs> uh, homeland, um, you know, defense, but I don't think a lot of people are going to pay attention to HHS. And with that big budget, with somebody that's a career politician, and with somebody that is not necessarily afraid of wielding the heavy hand of the government when available, I think you're going to see a very different department in a couple of years than even what we saw under the Obama administration. That is a terrifying concept.
0: So we've dealt with inexperienced individuals. We've dealt with professional politicos who know how to get their way into positions of authority because of who they know. Our last nomination is perhaps the opposite of almost all these people. This individual of all of them is the most qualified probably of any nomination for this position we've seen. The person is of course, Janet Yellen, who has been nominated and confirmed to be the secretary of the treasury. And for those of you who don't know, this woman is particularly formidable. She has her uh, undergraduate from Brown, her master's and PhD from Yale in economics. She, taught, un, uh, she, she was um, educated under Joseph Stiglitz, who was her predecessor on the Council of Economic Advisors. So she chaired the Council of Economic Advisors. These are people who go to the president and say, hey, you should do this for the economy. So she was that for Clinton. She was the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco under both Bush and Obama. She was the chairwoman, the first female chairwoman of the Federal Reserve Board, our central bank. Uh, She was that under both um, Obama and part for Trump. And now she's the secretary of the treasury. She has taken all three major economic positions. So looking at her from a qualification standpoint, there's perhaps no one more qualified. Of all the expertise that could be uh, put into one person, she's got it, right? So there's there's no criticism there. However, the criticism is not in her lack of expertise. Her The criticism is in the type of expertise that she has. Janet Yellen is the archetypal Keynesian economic, uh,
1: economist, okay?
0: Now, for those of you who don't- Can we have... add in a
1: lightning strike there? <laughs> Did we? No, I think we need to like add in a lightning strike oh. where we just like the archetypal Keynesian economist. And then- <laughs> yeah, I'll just do yeah. it. <laughs> okay.
0: For those of you who don't know uh, the, the, the schools of economic thought, right? There are the, the, the most predominant in the world is based off of a man named Maynard Keynes, Okay, John Maynard Keynes. And he developed this idea of using the power of government to put its hand into the economy, to twist dials, to t- pull levers, um, to make the economy run as it is. And it has a particular focus and emphasis on having full employment, right? The more people who are working, the better. OK, as compared to some others who say, no, you want to look at inflation. If you keep inflation down, then you have a better economy. But both sides are basically looking at how can we use the government to control the economy? That's what it comes down to. OK, now there are other schools of thought and economics, the a predominant, um, not predominant, a main oppositional school is Austrian where instead of looking at the economy like a machine that can be turned and twisted, it looks at the economy like a forest or an ecosystem, that it runs as it is. And the most you can do is harness its power, but you can't control nature. Kenzians, like the Secretary of the Treasury now, says it's a machine. I can push buttons. I can change dials as much as I see fit. And she did that while she was the chairwoman of the Federal uh, Reserve, Okay, where she plummeted interest rates to what below she was she was she going into negative rates i can't remember do you remember cody do you remember christy
1: i don't remember them them hitting hitting negative
0: i don't know if they hit negative but they got doggone near close right what does this do right we're not an uh, an economics podcast what the hell am i talking about here we are talking about someone who has an unparalleled faith in the power of the state to manage the most fundamental reality of society, its economics, right? The wealth, the well being, the property rights. This is someone who believes in the power of government to dictate policy, right? To not just dictate policy, but policy that will ultimately manage our entire way of life right our our, our economy because that's really what the economy is it's it's how we interact with one another on a physical kind of level okay is she qualified absolutely which is the most to me this is the most terrifying appointment of them all it is because she is so qualified because she is so competent that in that competency she poses as a true danger in wielding policy in wielding the ability to issue bonds, to dictate financial policy. It is in that competency that she has a great influence on whether or not the federal government's treatment of the economy is freedom-based or force-based. And being Keynesian, it's probably going
1: to be force-based. And that's worrisome. So my biggest concern with her is that she's got no kind of regard or concern for... um, For the national debt. And I don't know how talking about the national debt has become like a partisan issue or how it's become like sometimes it's even like labeled as one of the hate issues to talk about. But to me, the idea that somebody that's going to walk in and and manage our budget, let's say, right, and and oversee the uh, economic policy of the United States doesn't care if we fall further into the red and has no concern about bringing us back into the black. And the idea of that to me is just shocking. Like how far can we go with the national debt just skyrocketing? I mean, I just, I mean, I guess maybe they're the, the position is like, who's going to call it in against us, (laughs) which I guess you could try and take that stance, but you know, that's a, that was a big flag for me. Um, during her confirmation and, and with her positions, it's just, you know, we continue to have little to no regard for debt. And obviously, I mean, the problems of just working versus productivity is a big issue of, you know, there's a big difference between busy work and between productive work. And that's something that, you know, that school of economic thought isn't concerned with.
0: You know, you mentioned this, you know, lack of concern for the debt and this idea of modern monetary theory, which is its own terrifying concept of, yeah, money's irrelevant, just do whatever you want. Something else to consider about, about Yellen. So she's held all three major positions, right? Chairman of the, economic, of the Council of Economic Advisors, Chairwoman of the Federal uh, Reserve, and now the Secretary of the Treasury. That should worry us in terms of the fact that not only does she know all these things. She knows all these people and she has a significant relationship with these people. Now we talk about how she was paid, what? $800,000 in speaking fees for Citigroup and a couple of other major banking organizations. I I don't care who you are and I don't care how smart you are. No one pays $800,000 to hear another person speak. That $800,000 is for something else. Right. Oh
2: yeah. no, and that I agree is like the biggest concern with her. I'm no expert in economics like you, Stanton. But it is highly concerning when someone with that much knowledge and with that much experience and that many relationships and those many money ties, controls this part of our government like there will be no dissuading her from what she already plans on doing she will do precisely what she wants to do because she knows exactly how to get it done and that is perhaps perhaps more dangerous than someone who you know is just filling in
0: to me she's the dick cheney of economics she has been going through the revolving door so much that she can basically walk into any economic organization and say do this and they'll say Okay, yes, ma'am. And it will be done almost without question, so to speak. Yeah,
1: but has she shot anybody? (laughs) Uh, Not that
2: we know of. Has she shot
0: lawyers? I don't know. Are you you worried, (laughs) Cody? I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we are closing in on an hour. I don't know if we've gone over, if we're under. I can't quite tell. Um, So we're going to start wrapping this up. Uh and we're going to wrap it up continuing with our segment uh shout outs, okay where we give thank or notice to people who we think you need to know about. Uh Cody got someone beside your mom this week. Not to say that m- mothers aren't deserving
1: of our love and affection. I d- no, last week remember I said my dad listens. Oh, um right. I do actually as I was thinking about this. The problem is right like your first shout out everybody's going to be like, "Oh, well that was your first one." But um a close friend of mine uh his name is Leo. Uh, is up, and he's a friend of mine. Back from my time in Canada. For those that don't know already, I don't know if I've said it on the podcast, but I lived in Canada for ten years. Um, and Leo's a, a, a loyal listener, uh, which we always appreciate. But um, the reason I wanted to shout him out is because I think one of the things that's really interesting is we were chatting about it, and you know, Canada is a very different country to the United States. Has very different protections, yet. A lot of these ideas of um, liberty and individual responsibility and self-sufficiency kind of, you know, cross the border without issue. It just depends on how the government uh, controls it. The other thing is he's given me valuable insight into things that I just kind of assume. I mean, sometimes I tend to, you know, get the ball rolling and just kind of assume that people are on board with me. And he's been able to help me pump my brakes on some of the issues. So Leo, I know you're listening. Thank you so much for your help. I I certainly appreciate it. And I hope that you continue to enjoy what we do.
2: Awesome. Christy? Well, so I will fall back on my mom this week because, hey, my parents like to listen occasionally when I talk. And she made me these amazing uh, jam-filled bars this week, which are definitely like my go-to food while I'm speaking at all these county meetings and doing all these Zoom calls. So mom couldn't do the podcast without your delicious food. Thank
0: you. That's awesome. Um, This week, earlier this week, uh, we were invited to do kind of a a sit-down session with... um, So Cody, Chris, and I, we met at what's called the Leadership Program of the Rockies, um, uh, called a a Boot Camp for Freedom. And uh, there is a recently new chapter of LPR out in Connecticut. And they asked us to do a little social, to sit down, talk about the podcast, Um, hopefully we we've garnered some new listeners from out there in Connecticut, but a shout out to you all. I hope you're listening. Hope you're enjoying it. And we're hoping that you share our show, that we, that we have a greater outreach from you out, out East. Um, When it comes to sharing our show, you can always do it at Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at S E F underscore pod. We don't know what we're going to talk about next time. But we're pretty sure it's going to be self-evident and it will likely be forgotten. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you listen. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you next time.